0: Well, I'd invite you to join me in turning to Matthew's gospel, chapter 11 this morning, Matthew 11. Um, we are moving forward in this great gospel, and it's, it's got a lot there, a lot to it, and a lot to unpack, and a lot that matters a great deal to our daily life. And I am excited to open the Word of God to you. Thank you, worship team, for Your ministry and mission, I love the team having different age groups up there and just the blend of uh, family worship together, good singing, and uh, the Lord is pleased in our worship. Uh, Matthew 11, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 20 through 24. Listen as I read these verses just to get us started. Verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is God's word. This is Jesus preaching. And the portion of his preaching here is ringing the note of judgment. The cities today need judgment. Our world needs to hear preaching on judgment not just because it is condemned, but to flee the wrath of God that's coming, to flee the fact that one day the sky will truly fall in a way that will be forever, a judgment that is eternal. The very message our generation needs to hear the most is what's most offensive for our generation to hear. It's the message of judgment. We need to hear it because we need to be shaken awake as a church to be alert to what is going on around us. We need to tune in to not just world events, but what the world events mean in light of the coming judgment of Christ. Christ returns and he's the lovely lamb of God, but he's also the lion of Judah. For those who are his part of his flock will be brought safely home those who are not his those who have rebelled even those who don't even know that they're rebelling will be sent to eternal judgment and hell i think that people will not listen to christ they won't listen to this message if it's sold any less than christ gives it To sell the message short of judgment is to do a disservice to our culture, to society, to those who are in passive resignation or indifference to the Lord, who don't care at all about the word of Christ, who don't care at all about eternal realities. There are degrees of heavenly joy and bliss in heaven, and there are degrees of doom, damnation, and torment in hell, and each are forever. You can't have eternal heaven without having eternal hell. You can't have the new heavens and the new earth without understanding that there is hell, darkness, destruction, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Jesus preached judgment. He preached the thing that people didn't want to hear because they needed to hear it the most He called this generation, as we remember from last week's sermon, he called them children. If you look at verse 16, but what shall I compare this generation to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute. You did not dance. We sang the dirge. You did not mourn. In other words... It's a mockery that's going on in light of judgment. There is indifference in this sing-song middle schooler mockery is happening on the playground where, hey, we, we sang this happy song and nobody reacted. And then we played a dirge and nobody mourned. There, there's no activity going on whatsoever. We're calling your bluff, Lord. We don't care. We're just going to sing about it and mock. They rejected and ignored the Lord, verses 16 and 17, and then they mocked the Lord, verses seven, um, eighteen and nineteen. They mock John the Baptist, who is the messenger of the Lord. He came neither eating nor drinking. He has a demon. He's this aesthetic. He's this weirdo out in the wilderness. We're going to completely mock him. We're going to just say that he's weird and his message has nothing to do with us whatsoever. We don't need a savior. We don't need a messiah. We want our religion. We want our safety net in religion, in the church, or whatever. You might be trusting in being an American as something, as some means to save you, or being 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 raised in a Christian home or my parents are saved or I'm not as bad as that person or this person so that I'm comfortable and saved. But that kind of mockery sends you to hell. The Son of Man, verse 19, they don't just mock the messenger, they mock the Messiah. The Son of Man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by our deeds. The Son of God, the Messiah himself who met with Uh, the dregs of society, who met with the tax collectors, those whom people hated, the Benedict Arnold's of Judaism, the ones that were the betrayers, the one who were bilking the system. Jesus called to them to be saved. He called out to the fishermen. He called out to the Gentile. He called out to the zealot. He amassed people around him, the harlots, the the women who were ostracized, the women who were just, who who were said to be not worthy of society. He said, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He welcomed them all. He sat with them. He had Bible study with them, and he won them to himself. He is the friend of sinners, and yet society mocks Jesus. They don't want Jesus. They not only rejected the Lord. They mocked the Lord. And then thirdly, as we began last week, they acted in presumption, acted in presumption. First in verse 20, refusing to repent. Look again at verse 20. Then he began to denounce. This is a strong, strong point of the message, a denunciation using strong language, putting them in their place. He denounced the cities where Most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent, saying you presumed upon the Lord. Here it is, Jesus who showed up to Chorazin, to Bethsaida, these these areas on um, the the Lake of Galilee, the Sea Sea of Galilee, of Capernaum, and then um, due north you have Chorazin and Bethsaida. Right there, neighboring towns where Jesus did untold amounts of miracles. We don't know of any recorded miracles in Chorazin and Bethsaida. We know some apostles were from Bethsaida. We know they were from there. But we don't know all of the miracle ministry. John the gospel, John's gospel said that if all the miracles were recorded, we wouldn't have enough books to, um, to house them all. We know in Capernaum, Jesus did an all-night miracle ministry at Peter's mother-in-law's house. He just raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. He healed deafness. He healed wounded limbs. He did all these great things. We know he healed um, the widow's son at Nain. He raised the little girl from the dead. He gave sight to the blind man by rubbing mud and, and spittle on his eyes. He did these amazing miracle things. He cast out demons. And people saw these things. He Remember the apostles came back from the stormy waters of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus had cast out the demons all the way at the Gadarenes on the other side. Then they came back and Jesus did miracle upon miracle with all of the city coming out to him. These miracle witnesses were profound and amazing and irrefutable. And yet those people that saw those things and then went, well, we don't really care. Those people are condemned on a level, on a scale that you do not want to be condemned. The word of God, the message of God that backed up the miracle ministry was rejected and they refused to repent. They refused to turn from their sin to their own detriment, to their own shame. So where does this leave us now? This takes us to verse 21 woe to you chorazin woe to you bethsaida what we're going to be looking at are two cities two cities and we're going to look at a third city capernaum and the principle is that god knows what it takes for someone to repent and when they reject it they are condemned Jesus' judgments are really only taken seriously if you understand them in view of hell. Think about that. It it takes a lot to pull someone out of their sin pattern, out of the the spiraling down, out-of-control sin pattern that you're involved in. You need to understand that not in view of this lifetime, but in view of the lifetime to come. We repent because of eternal consequences, A lot of people at the end of their lifetime will sit bedside and say things to themselves like, I just regret that I didn't have this conversation with this family member or that family member. I just regret that I worked my job so much and so long and so many hours and neglected spending time with my family. I just regret, fill in the blank, I didn't have this conversation. I didn't spend this time. I worked too much. Well, that's viewing regret in view of this lifetime. And I understand those kinds of regrets. Those are natural and normal things to think and work through and wrestle with. But really, what we should most regret is what we did with our own hearts and lives in this lifetime. Because everything isn't measured in view of this past lifetime that we lived. Everything is measured in view of open-ended eternity. Think about the difference. I just regret that I never repented of my sins. I just regret that I didn't work heartily unto the Lord. If you don't work, you don't eat. If you don't provide for your own, you're worse than infidel. I regret that I didn't work hard, that I was lazy as a sinner in this lifetime. How about those kinds of regrets, right? We work hard and you do it for the Lord. I regret that I didn't witness to that person. I should have given the gospel because I could have reaped a harvest to the glory of God. I regret those kinds of regrets. In view of eternity, we have to understand that false guilt enters into our minds as a way to keep our minds unfocused from eternity. We want, to fix our, we want to fixate on what we could have done here when our souls will be called to account and suddenly it doesn't matter how much you have in your storehouse or not, right? All that's left behind. All that matters is what we did with Christ and what we did in view of Christ with others others that 's it that 's it. Eternity has to be in view, otherwise church is a mere facade it 's a waste of time. Why give your treasure? Why give your time? Why give your talents? We give it in view of Christ and eternity. I was talking to a friend of mine. Just yesterday in that great restaurant area of Costco off Diamond, and um I was on the phone with him and basically he was saying, Yeah, a lot of people these days that I'm respecting are are changing their end times theology to accommodate now society. Society today, social justice today, ah millennialism, post millennialism. These are brothers and sisters in Christ, but but really viewing things in view of judgment that's going to come where God is going to rapture us, where he's going to destroy this world with fire this time. It was water before, it's fire the second time, and we're going to heaven. That's not an escapist theology. That's reality with scripture theology. Our souls will come into account, and what we do here matters in view of the future. Forever punishments are felt in future degrees according to what we did in this life. Sin will drag people to inescapable hell and judgment is the warning before us. Again, the only thing that will loose someone from the grip of sin is to view their sin in light of a coming judgment. Let me just say this. This text has everything to do with being presumptuous about the revelation of God. One of the greatest things that ever happened to our country is one of the worst things that's ever happened to our country. And that is how much exposure our country has had to the Word of God. It's incredible. The first awakening. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest theological mind of our country, giving the Word of God. You learn this probably in class. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. What a sermon. But, uh, you know, these things are being erased. These things are being redacted. Just like the war statues are going away, church history is going to be going away. People will not think about God as, as a witness in our country where the Puritans came over and settled this place with colonies and churches and preaching. That's what our country was founded on. Not that everybody was converted, not that the Constitution is some kind of extra, you know, version of, you know, an almost biblical document. It's not like that. But I'm saying people believed in God. They believed in sin. They believed in in being accountable. And now that's all going away. We're really one probably half generation away from, you know, kids waking up and going, what do do you mean, Bible?" Isn't that hate speech? What do you mean church? Isn't it, aren't those strange places that are illegal gatherings? I mean, that's where things are going in our society. And as sad as that is, the more important thing is that people need to be warned Um, to believe in the revelation that has been given over the centuries, the first awakening, the second great awakening, whitfield Wesley, and then all of the the churches that spawned from that movement through the colonies, through the states, missions that's gone out all over the world for generations here. Now that's being erased, but um, think about it. You were raised in probably... Um, some knowledge, either in a Christian home or some knowledge of God's word, right? And we'll keep that going inside the church, but it's a stewardship that should not be neglected or presumed upon. And people who presume upon the fact that, oh, you know, I'll be fine. Everything will work out just fine is is a diluted understanding of things. There's two kinds of, of revelation that will condemn people. One is general revelation and the other is special Revelation. God witnesses to all of the world through general revelation. His invisible attributes are on display through all the creation of the world. The birds, the mountains, the the animals in the seas. All these things speak to the glory of God. Man made in the image of God speaks to the glory of God. And Romans 1 actually says that there's enough revelation that comes through the creation to condemn someone to hell. Well, guess what? There's also special revelation, which is the word of God. And the elephant in the room is that you're always under the word of God. That's the potent gospel. That's enough to that's enough for to send you to hell if you reject it, but the word of God is the special revelation that also draws you to heaven as you believe it. And so the word of God is the pivot point in your life, that which you need to believe. Not just hear as a kind of a wake-up call every Sunday, not to take as a vitamin C pill, but to live by the word of God because it's the very word of Christ that has changed your life and given you direction. This world was made With one goal in mind, and that was for the glory of God. You were put on this earth for the glory of God. And sin was injected into this world according to Genesis 3. And it put it on a trajectory to judgment. One day this world will be consumed, as I said, as it was by a flood. Ultimately by fire. But we need the Lord. We need the Lord. Romans chapter One is a place I want to just turn your attention to real quick. This is one of the the clearest indictments on culture. And I want you to see what's really going on. Look at verse 18. This is Paul preaching judgment in Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Listen to this. Who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? Suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. This is special revelation. Now again, general revelation is the witness of God where God is declaring his glory through the world to everyone. And if someone says, oh, you know, I want to learn about God, God will send a missionary to that person. The gospel will get to that person and save that person. If they reject God from general revelation, they will go to hell. Special revelation is the word of God specifically going um, as truth To the ears of all who are hearing it, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Romans chapter 10 says, how shall they hear without a preacher? So you hear the word of God and you believe. That's special revelation. Those who reject and suppress truth digress in culture. Look at verse 20, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without what excuse when there's rejection of truth, that special revelation and general revelation, verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. That's step one, digression one. And then it gets worse. Look at verse 27. And men likewise gave up natural relations. This is what's happening in our culture today. Men and women giving themselves over to homosexuality and women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts. That's digression level number two. And then verse 28. Here's level three. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is where our world is again today. Genesis chapter six, pre-flood, verse five, every intention of every thought in the heart was only evil continually. That's the description. That's the Old Testament Romans one. And then judgment came. Everybody in that day, they were like, what's Noah doing? We don't care. We're just partying along. We don't care. And then God brought the flood. What's coming again? This is the judgment of God. Romans 2, it leaves the Gentile without excuse. In verse 15, they have a conscience that's That says their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Their consciences are bearing witness that there's something going wrong. There's something happening. The law is written in their own hearts and they're conflicted as well. And people are wriggling and, and, and shaking and wondering what's happening. And it's because they sense the judgment is coming. This God of creation, there is a designer to this divine design and I'm rejecting it and I don't know what's wrong. And then when they hear special revelation or truth, they go, well, I'm not sure. That's hate speech. I don't want any of that. And it's condemning them to this judgment. We need to be warned of this in our own lives. But we need to warn people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to come out of a natural mindedness of 1 Corinthians 2, 14. They need to believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved You know, there's idolatry that happens where people will spiritualize and make whole religions around general revelation and special revelation, general revelation. What is, what's the false religion of that? It's called naturalism where people are either tribally in tribes and they're, they're worshiping totems and worshiping things around that are nature, but they're not seeing God. They're missing God. They're staying down here on earth and worshiping nature. People say, "Oh, I can feel God out in this world," and I bring that up because people are doing that, and they're lost, and they're, 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 they get a sense of God, but they don't go all the way to God. And then, on the other hand, people through special revelation, false worship will experience they'll, they'll worship experientialism and supernaturalism, and they will trying to see God everywhere and in everything and experience. The hyper charismatic movement that is carrying people straight to hell needs to be called out because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Albert Einstein, raised, he was a Jew, he was raised in a Catholic um, school system, he was from Germany. He said, my religion consists of a humble admiration of the illimitable spirit, superior spirit, who reveals himself in the slight details we are able to perceive with our frail and feeble mind. Was Einstein a believer? No. But he sensed there was something of God because he was so smart that he could look at creation and design and couldn't, he couldn't deny the divine design. But you have to have a changed heart. Probably not far from the kingdom, but very sad. He was a pantheist. I God was in everything, everywhere. We need to reconstruct what the deconstructionists are trying to wipe away from our society. Taking away the statues, taking away our history. We need to bring the word of God to bear on people's souls. People who are losing their way. They need To know the Lord. They're presuming that everything will be fine when it is not. Back to Matthew 11. Let's unpack this now. Matthew 11, verse 20. He began to denounce, he was going for the jugular here, denounce the cities where the most of his mighty works had been done. There were incredible things done. He denounced them because they didn't repent. They presumed on the privilege of the word of God. There was a strong concentration of miracles. Now let's look at the three cities in particular he denounced. He says, woe to you. That's judgment to you, corazon." The woe here, according to Barclay, he, it's the Greek word alas, and he talked about the sorrowful pity of Christ. It's not an accent of temper because his self-esteem had been um, touched. It wasn't blaze, blazingly angry or insulted. It was an accent of sorrow, the accent of one who offered to men the most precious thing in the world and saw it disregarded. It was the woe judgment of a broken heart. Chorazin is, uh, again, due north of Capernaum, kind of at the top of the Sea of Galilee on a Bible map. Bethsaida is is right there next to it. Andrew, Peter, and Philip are from Bethsaida. John one forty four and 12.21 say this. Tyre and Sidon, um, which is the Mediterranean neighbor towns that are compared to Chorazin and Bethsaida are off the Mediterranean Sea on the eastern side of the Mediterranean, due west of the Sea of Galilee. Tyre and Sidon, you can find them on a map as well. Tyre and Sidon were a... Um, they were a kind of seaman's town, they, a seafarer's town, um, all kinds of debauchery and sin and degradation are associated with Tyre and Sidon. It was epitome, and it, it was epitomized as totally pagan with Gentile corruption, immorality. It was what you would think of the worst of the worst in terms of society. And what Jesus is doing here is he's calling the bluff of the religious Pharisees, calling the bluff of you. If you're sitting there comfortable in your own religion saying, I'm just fine. Why are you yelling at me? Why didn't I go to a soft spoken preacher this morning? I don't need to hear this. He's calling the bluff on the indifferent. The person who would say, well, I'm not as bad as dot, dot, dot. I'm not as bad as that pagan community. I'm not as bad as being a Buddhist. I'm not as bad as worshiping Vishnu. I'm not as bad as the spiritual new age person. I'm not as bad as that person who uses drugs. I'm not as bad as that person who's addicted to alcohol. I'm not as bad as that person who's given over to serial pornography. I'm not as bad as I'm not as bad as Jesus is calling the bluff of all of that high-minded, wrong-thinking. And he's saying, woe to you, Corzin! Woe to you, Bethsaida. Why? Because they presumed upon the Lord with the concentration of miracles, the concentrated ministry of the Messiah, and they rejected it. They rejected it saying, oh, we're not as bad as Tyre and Sidon. We had the Lord. He was here. He preached here. We're good. Well, how bad was Tyre and Sidon? Ezekiel 28, 11 through 15 speaks of the king of Tyre the king of Tyre. He was so arrogant and so lifted up that he received a strong rebuke from Ezekiel. Ezekiel 26 to 28 is talking about how God brought destruction to Tyre and Sidon. But notice that this is a text that not only talks about a king, a real king in time and space, but it's also an allusion to Satan. That's Ezekiel 28. So you can't get much worse than Satan in your own mind, right? Ezekiel 28 verse 11, more of the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you are the signet of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, garden of God, precious stones was your covering, sardius, topaz, diamond, burl, onyx jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day when you were created and prepared, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you uh, were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Now, all of that speaks directly to the king of Tyre, but it is an allusion to Satan who had all of this privilege, all of the presence of God, all of this glory, the highest angel, and he fell. And this is what Jesus is warning these cities regarding. This is the warning. You're saying, I'm not as bad as Tyre. I'm not as bad as this place that's compared to Satan. And what does Jesus say? He says, if the mighty works, verse 21, done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Instead of saying the devil himself would have repented if they were given what you were given. Think about that. Sackcloth and ashes, put on the camel's fur, the scratchy garment, put on the black ashes on your head, on your face, like running mascara as you cry roll around in the dirt. Woe is me. I'm a sinner. It's Isaiah 6. Woe is me. I see my sin because the Messiah is this great Savior. It says, But I tell you it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. This is all a reference to something that I think is super important to understand. It's called the contingent knowledge of God. That opens up all kinds of theological Debate in terms of the sovereignty of God, what he's in control of and the responsibility of man. What are we reacting to and what are we responsible for? And I'm not going to take a lot of time to unpack all of that. Just to say that what Jesus is saying is that God is big enough to see a scenario that if Jesus had literally physically come to Tyre and Sidon in Old Testament times and said, repent and believe and done miracles, they would have repented. That's what God is that's what Jesus is saying about God and Jesus is God. But that's what he's saying about God. He's saying that, that there is a contingent knowledge that is on display here. Something that would have happened had something happened. A cause and effect under such and such circumstances. Second, you need to see that God doesn't owe revelation to anyone. He didn't do that for Tyre and Sidon. He doesn't owe that to anyone. There's no injustice with God withholding it. God doesn't give the same amount of revelation, the same amount of opportunity to everyone in the world in the same way. I mean, just think about our country. It's so incredible how much Bible has reached our country. The way it reached Europe, the way it went throughout um, England with the English Reformation. And then earlier throughout Germany and France and all that area in Europe with the great... Um, Protestant Reformation of 1600s. It's incredible to think about the word of God, how it spread, how in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, the word of God was going in massive ways where people were either accepting and believing or hard-heartedly rejecting. There are different seasons and different eras where the word of God is marching profoundly through China and the China Inland Mission or through the ministry of David Livingston or William Carey in India, the word of God, or Adoniram Judson in Burma, the word of God going out and there's people who believe it or forsake it. and God is not unjust to do it in different ways, different times, different seasons, however he wants to do it around the world the way he wants to do it. But when you come in contact with the word of God, there is a higher privilege, a higher opportunity and a higher stewardship and a greater condemnation. If you reject it, if you walk away from the word of God, you're walking away from the face of Christ. That's the point of this text. There's an opportunity to believe. There's also degrees of torment and hell if you reject Luke chapter 24, 47 to 48 talks about a severe beating and a light beating. There are those who will be beaten severely throughout all of eternity and those who will be beaten at lesser degrees. There's degrees of pleasure in heaven, degrees of torture and torment in hell. That's what this text is saying. More bearable in the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon, the one compared to Satan, than for Chorazin and Beseda, Let's move to Capernaum, verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Rhetorical question. You will be brought down to Hades. Now, where is this taken from in scripture? It's taken from Isaiah chapter 14. I was just looking at my little sidebar notes. I studied it out in commentaries and found it. it's right there in my little Bible notes right here too. Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, you know what that's a reference to? That's a reference to the remnant of Israel condemning Babylon. The most evil place on the planet in the Jews mind is condemned in Isaiah 14. Do you know what Isaiah 14, this direct passage is a reference to also Satan. Satan. Two devil passages. Jesus is going, you're trying to prop yourself up and say, I'm better than them. Well, guess what? They're even worse than you would think. And you're not better than them. That's what Jesus does. Capernaum. Contingent knowledge. Look at this. It says, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have have remained until this day. It's incredible. It's incredible to think about. Isaiah 14, let's go there first before we get to Sodom. Another terrible thing to be compared to. Isaiah 14, 12 through 16. How are you... How you are fall how you are fallen from heaven o daystar son of dawn how you are cut down to the ground you who laid the nations low you said in your heart look at this i will ascend to heaven above the stars i will set my throne on high i will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north i will send above the heights of the clouds i will make myself like the most high but you are here it is brought down to sheol that's the direct reference that jesus is using you will be brought down to hades to the far reaches of the pit those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you is this the man who made the earth tremble who shook the kingdoms this babylon babylon revelation 17 5 is um, the mother of prostitutes the earth's abominations that's babylon Here, heaven is contrasted with hell, verse 23. You think you're going to be exalted to heaven, Capernaum, because you are around Jesus, but you will be brought down to Hades, just like Babylon. You're going down into the pit. And then he changes the comparison here to Sodom. He says, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Comparison here to Babylon, but Sodom that horrible wicked town that you remember in, and, and it's the land of Sodom. So it's a broader geographical swath of um, of cities there that, that represent a Babylonian um, place, Sodom and, Sodom and Gomorrah where Lot was. And righteous Lot, though he was saved, was confused and trying to be won over by angels and warned to get out of the city. And he's housing them. And the angels are so beautiful to the perverse people Where we say our culture is so bad, well, it's just digressing and regressing and cycling back to Sodom, where you had homosexuality to the point where the crowds were beating the doors down to get to the angels to sodomize them. And ultimately, Lot is so confused and deluded in his own understanding, he's offering his daughters to save the angels. That's how messed up and perverted things were, given over to a debased mind. If God had given the same revelation that he gave to Capernaum, Sodom would be here to this day. God, with fire and brimstone, brimstone, wiped Sodom off the map, wiped it out of the world. But had Jesus come, it would be here today. Had the miracles and the stewardship that Capernaum had been given, had that been given to Sodom, Sodom would be here today. That's contingent knowledge. That's what God knows to be true. Verse 24. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. It's going to be better for Sodom. It's going to be better for Babylon. It'll be better for these people who didn't have as much revelation than for you. Presumption is such a horrible sin. We hear the truth we remain untouched. We hear the Bible, we, re- we remain unmoved. We hear truth exhorted to our hearts to be humble, to deal with our sins, to turn away from things, and we have passive resistance against it. We say Vladimir Putin is bad, but we won't look in the mirror and see our own sin. We say Hitler is bad, he'll get a hotter hell because he killed millions of Jews. We won't look at our own hearts. We say, you know, this person is bad, that person's bad but we won't deal with our own hearts looking into the mirror of the word of God and saying, God, forgive me of my sins. All I need is Christ. All I have is Christ. Satan wants you to be a practical as agnostic. wants you to feel like you can't know one way or the other anything about anything or he wants you to be a practical atheist and deny God altogether. Even though you might confess him with your lips, your heart is far from him. You say, Go and be blessed and forget everything you just heard and witnessed. That's the heart that Satan wants to ensnare. He wants to take your mind elsewhere. He wants you to solve the world's problems. He wants you to be the proverbial frog in the kettle, boiling and not thinking about the fact that things are beginning to heat up and you don't even see it, you're unaware. So much of Christianity today is trying to solve for social justice. You know what that is? Solve for here and now. Now, we read earlier in the Proverbs, you don't walk by someone in need and, and deny them what they need. You don't harden your heart to that. But that's you do things for others in view of eternity, not to solve the society here and now. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He wrote this in Screwtape Letters. Screwtape Letters is this. Um, you know sort of satirical writing it's really brilliantly done it calls God the enemy because Uncle Screwtape is this demon who has a demon disciple named Wormwood and he's writing him letters on how to corrupt Christianity how to corrupt the church how to distract people from truth and Lewis is long gone right he doesn't live in this day and age but he's writing as if he's addressing the church today listen to what he says the thing to do is to get a man at first to value social justice as a thing which the enemy demands. Enemy here is God in this satire. The enemy demands. And then work him on the stage at which he values Christianity because it may produce social justice. For the enemy will not be used um, as a convenience. Men or nations who think they can revive the faith in order to make a good society might just as well think they can use the stairs of heaven as a shortcut to the nearest chemist shop. Fortunately, it is quite easy to coax humans round this little corner and this little rift that's in the, in the church. Believe this, not because it is true, but for some other reason. Hey, believe this. Believe you can fix the world. Not because it's true. Believe that you can make a difference through social activism. Not because it's true. That's the game. It's not that we're not supposed to do our part in this world and help others. We are. It's not that we're not supposed to love those in need. We must. It proves that we're Christians to do that out of a heart of faith. But to be distracted with here and now to the point where you forget about eternity is the ludicrousity that Satan wants you to stumble into. I was uh, pre-sermon, pre-briefing this with some men on Friday morning with a first draft copy of this. And one of them is Oleg. And he's, as I said, he and Amanda are going to present some prayer requests regarding um, praying for Ukraine and family and the church in Russia, the church in Ukraine. That's important. But after he heard this sermon at the end, he was talking about how um, right before Crimea had been taken over by Vladimir Putin, that's 2014 going into 2015. And he said he, um, he had already come here because he married Amanda and, and started his new life here, by God's grace, in Alaska. Um, thankful for that, but he had left his son. He had a teenage son um, still there. And when Crimea was taken, he saw the warning, he saw the handwriting on the wall that Vladimir Putin was going to be a threat to Ukraine. So he took Dima, his son, here. And his son went to Grace Christian School and graduated from Grace Christian School. And he was making the comparison that when the bombs started to drop in Ukraine and there's shelling, people they right before were just perfectly at rest, thinking they were perfectly safe, and they weren't. The shelling came and everybody ran and it scattered. It's a picture of coming judgment. It's a, a picture of wrath that's coming. People are taking their ease. People are what Genesis 6, 5 through 7 talks about. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. It's sad. It's sad to think about the way people ignore the grace of God, presume upon the grace of God. Just like in the days of Noah, like in the days of Lot, judgment is mounting. The threat is looming. People need to repent. And we need to be those who call people to repent. Will you do that? We need to help people to flee the wrath of God that is to come.